So if you are a Dallas Cowboy fan, you know that yesterday they demolished the Philadelphia Eagles. Any Eagles fans in the house? Okay. You don't want to admit that, right? Um, it was like 51 to 24. But the Cowboys have been averaging 80, 81,000 fans at their home games this year. Okay, It's a lot of people. Texas, they're crazy, right? <laughs> 81,000 fans packed into, I think it's AT&T Stadium, they call it. I want you to imagine that. You've seen that. Imagine all of a sudden, 30,000 of those fans suddenly disappear. They're gone. In a moment, yeah, just like that. I wonder how long it would take people to Notice that. Kind of depends on how much they've been drinking, right? (laughs) (laughs) How long would it take them to notice that suddenly 30,000 people are gone? What would be the reaction? How crazy would that be? Or picture this. You're driving down the road. You're on the freeway. And suddenly the person right in front of you, boom, it's gone. Their car's just going free. That would be scary. Or 30 kids in a school classroom. And suddenly, five or six of them, boom, gone. Vanish. Just like that. It's going to happen. Some of you are thinking, Pastor Robin watching a lot of sci-fi lately? Reruns of the Twilight Zone? No, not at all. We're talking about and describing an event that the Bible predicts is going to happen in the latter days. Days that I believe that we are definitely living in. An event that could happen at any moment, an event known as the rapture of the church, when believers all over the world are suddenly vanished taken to heaven to be with Jesus. And I believe that this is the next event on the prophetic calendar. Now, some people think that maybe we might see before this what the Bible describes in Ezekiel chapter 38 when Russia and Iran and some of those nations come against Israel. And I think that is a possibility. But I believe that that will actually happen early on in the tribulation time. And that the next event that we really are looking for is this one, the rapture. You see, there's nothing prophetically that still needs to take place. Israel is back in place as a nation. We see the advancement of technology, that the mark of the beast, that cashless society, we're, we're set up for that. We're ready for that. We're living at a time that the Bible says will we'll characterize the last days where lawlessness will abound. We're living in a day and age of lawlessness. I'm sure you've heard about you know, the new problems they're having today all over 
all over our country of the grab and go. You know what I'm talking about? That grab and go where you can go in. I mean, if you haven't seen this yet, you will. Someone, I was just talking to a friend of mine. She was in Target and she's watching these young guys just stuffing their backpack full of stuff and then they walk right out the door. And no one's going to prosecute them. They're not even going to arrest them. I was talking to a police officer friend of mine. He says, we're not even going to arrest them because if it's, un- if it's under $1,000, we can't prosecute them. It's crazy. It's lawlessness. I was talking to another friend of mine who used to be the deputy chief of a um, city up in, in Oregon, in the police department in this particular city. And he was telling me that back when he, he just retired two years ago or last year, and when he was on the force, a big time bust, a big time drug bust, they, in this town that he was in, they they would maybe net from that bust, they would, you know, seize, seize is the right word, seize, 50 grand. If it was 50 grand, they were like, wow, that was a big bust. Now that weed is legalized in Oregon, they're having bus where they're seizing over a million dollars. That's how crazy it is. He was telling me we had more cash in our police department than the banks had in our city from all the drug busts. It's crazy. It's lawlessness going on in our world. The stage is set, my friends, and I believe the time is getting short that Jesus could come back for his church at any time. So tonight, what I wanted to do on this very first prophecy update of of 2022 is I wanted to talk about the rapture, and I want to say that there are Christian theologians, pastors, leaders today, they don't believe that the the rapture is a biblical idea. They think that it's something that was kind of invented back in 1843 by a guy by the name of John Darby. I'm not going to get into that argument tonight because I covered it pretty deeply back in November. If you missed that, November 21st, our study in 2 Peter chapter 3, we went into this and I dealt with some of those arguments and how um, many of the early church fathers, and I gave some quotes from some of them, believed in and taught that the rapture was imminent and that it would happen before the tribulation, that it, it was what they were looking for, this coming of Jesus. Tonight what I want to do is I want to focus on why we at Calvary Vista and many other evangelicals believe that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. When it comes to the rapture, there's three positions primarily. There are those who believe concerning the rapture, and I want to just say this. All the positions, the people that believe, you know, these different positions, they're all saved. They all love Jesus. They all, you know, believe in the Bible. But there are those who believe that the rapture will happen at the end of the tribulation. They were, are called post-tribbers. That right before the second coming, the church is caught up. We're actually at the second coming to meet Jesus in the air. And we turn right back around and come back, you know, to this earth with him. It's like we go up to join the parade and we come back down. And, and I just don't really see a lot of biblical credence for that. And personally, I think, what's the point? 
What's the point? To just go right up, back up and turn back around. In my seminary class, I, I called that reverse bungee jump uh, theology. And my theologian, my seminary professor, rebuked me <laughs> for it. <laughs> so I, I don't say that anymore. Um, I just did, though. But uh, <laughs> So there's those who are the post-tribbers. And then there are those who are what are called the mid-tribbers, or sometimes it's called the pre-wrath position, who believe the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation time. And they see the tribulation being divided into these two parts where the first part is sort of a time of peace where the Antichrist is setting up his reign and his rule. And then it's the second half of that where all hell breaks loose. And and the rapture happens at that midway point before they say the wrath of God comes upon planet Earth. I'm going to talk about that tonight. There are some good points for those who believe in the mid-trib or pre-wrath position, but there are some things that they ignore. But this is what we believe. We believe that the rapture of the church will happen before the tribulation starts. And I wanted to spend our first prophecy update of 2022 talking about this and letting you know our stance on this so that this would be for you kind of a a point of reference moving forward and so when we are referring to in, in some coming prophecy updates and teachings about the coming of the lord for his church that you would know this is what we're talking about and this is why So this is what I felt the Lord put on my heart for us to address tonight. And years ago, some of you might remember this, we were honored. This will go down for me as a highlight in my 25 years here. We were honored to have with us one Sunday morning for our Sunday morning services, Dr. John Walvert, great theologian, professor at Dallas, he was, I think he was 88 years old at that time. He died when he was 92. He literally hobbled out here, you know, and, and I mean, like walked really slow, was kind of hunched over. He's like 6'4". He's a big, you know, big guy. We brought a stool to sit behind him just in case. And he's like, I don't need no stool, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and he preached, And he had such a love for Bible prophecy and a love for Jesus, was looking forward to God's coming. And that will always go down for me as as a highlight as pastor here at this church, to have him here. I've always just loved his, his works. Well, he has written a book, great book, called The Rapture Question. If you are interested in reading up on this subject, it's really, really good. But in that book, at the end of it, he gives 50 reasons why the rapture will happen before the tribulation. I'm not going to give you 50 reasons tonight. (laughs) We would be here way too long. I'm going to give you four or five. Why I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. And then I want to finish by talking about how we should be living in light of this information. So I want to begin, though, with talking about what is the rapture and where do we see this in Scripture. So I asked you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. We read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here Paul the Apostle is describing to the church in Thessalonica an event when Jesus comes from heaven. And he doesn't come, though, to planet Earth. He comes to the clouds. And there's a shout, and there's the sound of a trumpet. And it says that those who are dead, they're already with him. They, they have risen up first. And then it says that we who are alive and remain on the earth are caught up to meet them in the air. And it's like this glorious reunion is taking place. And this is what the Bible describes as the rapture. And God takes us, Jesus takes us to heaven. Now, some would say, wait, 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 wait. I don't see the word rapture in this passage. In fact, I've heard that the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. You know what? You're right. It's not. However, the phrase in verse 17, translated where it says caught up, that's the Greek word harpazo. Everybody say harpazo. I love that word, harpazo which means to be snatched away, to be taken away. That's what it's describing. And when the New Testament was translated into Latin, the translators took the word harpazo. The Latin word for that is raptus, from which we get our English word rapture. So that's where this word originates from. It's describing a time when believers in Jesus Christ from all over the world will be snatched away and taken into heaven. Now, Jesus alluded to this in John chapter 14. I think this one's on the screen. Do you guys have John 14? Yeah, okay. In John 14, Jesus said this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If I were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay? Let me ask you this question. Where's Jesus going? Heaven. My father's house. Many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then he says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I want you to note this. Jesus says, I'm going I'm preparing a place. I'm going to come again, not to set up my kingdom here. That's not yet. But I'm, I'm going to come again to do what? To receive you. It's the word paralambano. It's to take is the idea. I'm going to take you to be to this place that I am preparing. That word means to receive, to take one to himself. Paul also described this event in 1 Corinthians. So I just want to say this. So John 14, I think Jesus is right there. He's, he's talking about the rapture. When he's going to come to take his church to be with him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul also describes this event. Verse 50, he says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The idea there is heaven requires a change in these bodies. These bodies, this isn't what we're taking to heaven with us. Thank God, right? <laughs> Last night, we're taking a picture, myself and Denise, 
and Jason Duff and his wife, Christy, and Jeremy Camp and his wife, Addie. And the guy taking the picture says, all right, suck in those guts. I'm looking at Jason like, you know he's talking about you and me, bro, you know, right? Everybody else in that picture is skinny. (laughs) We're not taking these bodies with us. With all the aches and pains and all of that. There's going to be a change in these bodies. How's that going to happen? Paul continues. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. Verse 51. We shall not all sleep. The Bible talks about sleep in this way. It's talking about dying. We're not all going to die. But we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul is describing an event where the dead are raised incorruptible. We get these new bodies, and we who are alive are changed. The word change there is metamorphosis. It's, it's the picture, it's the idea of when the, the caterpillar crawls into the cocoon and then comes out a butterfly. It doesn't look like that ugly caterpillar anymore, right? Beautiful butterfly. That's what he's saying. That's the type of change in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This corruption, these bodies are turned to incorruption. This mortal puts on immortality. And it happens just like that. It's like, now you see me, now you don't. The Lord comes at an unexpected time. But here's the thing, we need to be ready. And again, I believe that this is the next event on the prophetic calendar. So here's what I want to do tonight. In the remainder of our time, I want to give you four or five reasons why the rapture will happen before the tribulation. So if you're taking notes, here's reason number one. I hope you're still in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I want you to look verse again at, uh, once again at verse 18. Number one, reason number one is the message of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 18, which is, Paul says, comfort one another with these words. In this section where he's talking about the rapture and how we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, he ends on this thought. He ends with this exhortation. I want you to comfort. The idea there is to encourage one another with these words, with this idea. You see, this is a key. This teaching on the rapture of the church is meant to comfort us. It's not meant to freak us out. It's meant to comfort us. It's meant that we're to be encouraged by this. But here's the thing. If the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation time, and the tribulation is described as a time in the Bible that if the days weren't shortened, no one would survive. That's how intense it's going to be. If, if the rapture were to happen at the end of the tribulation or even in the middle of the tribulation time, Paul's message wouldn't be comfort one another. His message would have been get ready because you're going to experience hell on earth. Prepare yourselves. Bear up. 
Because you're going to go through a really, really heavy time. Prepare for the worst. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, comfort one another with these words. Remind and encourage one another that Jesus is coming for his bride. That's reason number one. Reason number two is the Bible says that we as the church, as the followers of Christ, are not appointed under wrath. This is very important. Turn one page over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul says this, beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord, we talked about this, is a time period of a thousand years. And, excuse me, it's a time period where, where, you know, God says the day of the Lord, it's, it's not a singular day. It's a time period. That's what I'm trying to say. Remember we talked about this in first uh, or second Thessalonians where God said that you know to him one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So it's, it's talking about a time period. And it's a time period that starts at the rapture and concludes at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. It includes the seven year time period known as the tribulation. This is the time period that Paul is referring to here. Notice he continues, verse three. For when we say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Note that, you might wanna underline that. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that that day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of day, and we are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of our salvation Here's the key. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake, whether we're alive or sleep or dead, we should live together with him. Verse 11, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. So here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is discussing this theme. This is a carryover from chapter 4 where he's talking about the rapture of the church. And when he says that it's, he's going to come like a thief in the night, the idea is that he's going to come as a thief to the unbelieving worlds. They're going to get caught off guard. You know, thieves don't leave calling cards, Right? They don't call you ahead of time and say, hey, Joe, just want you to know I'm going to rob you on Friday night at about 11 p.m. They don't do that. No, they come at an unexpected time. They come when you're not thinking or you're not ready. Well, the rapture is going to be, is going to come for the world, shouldn't be for us because we're supposed to be waiting and watching and aware of the signs of the times that we're living in, but for the world, it's gonna come at an unexpected time and the rapture is going to be followed by the tribulation. And all of this is under the banner of what Paul is referring to here as the day of the Lord. And on that thought, Paul offers these words of encouragement. Notice it again. Verse 9, 
For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. Paul echoes this idea in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, when he says that we are not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation. You see, the wrath of God, this is key, catch this, so important. When we talk about the wrath of God, it describes an ominous time that is going to be coming upon planet Earth, a time that many, many of the Old Testament, especially the minor prophets, spoke of, a time when God is going to pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected him. And again, the Bible says that if those days were not shortened, no one would survive that time. So here's the question. Paul says that we are not appointed to that wrath. Why why are we not appointed to that wrath? Here's why. And this should bless your heart. Because the wrath that we deserved was already poured out upon Jesus at Calvary for us. He took the wrath upon himself. He died in our place. That wrath was absorbed by Jesus. And like I said this morning, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is sufficient to pay the price for all of the sin of all of humanity, but it's only efficient to those who put their faith in Christ and embrace what he did on Calvary for them. So here's the thing. If we were to go through any of the tribulation time, we would be experiencing the wrath of God. And God would be punishing us for something that Jesus already paid the price for, and God is a just God. He will not do that. Now, some people will argue and say, well, that's escapism. Well, (laughs) look at verse 3 again. Paul says, they're not going to escape. They won't escape this. Which seems to leave an indication that some are going to. Someone's going to escape it. And Jesus in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36, he said this, watch and pray that you will be counted worthy to do what? Escape and stand before the Son of Man. Now, if that wasn't an option, And Jesus is talking there about the tribulation time. Luke 21 is a parallel to Matthew chapter 24. If if escaping it wasn't an option, Jesus would have said, okay, I want you to watch and pray and buy weapons and gold and food and store it up and get ready to go through it. But he doesn't say that. He says, pray that you would be counted worthy to escape. And being worthy is living in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, here's the thing that we have to kind of get rid of because this is the argument sometimes that I get from Christians in the West. They watch and they see our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world going through intense persecution, being martyred for their faith. And they realize we've got it easy here. And, they, and they'll say, you know, that just doesn't seem fair. That just doesn't seem right. That we get to miss out on that type of thing. 
And so because of that, many of them think, no, 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 we're going to go through a time of, of, of we're going to go through the tribulation. Now, I will say this. I do think it's quite possible. Should the Lord tarry and things keep going as crazy as they are in the United States that we could be facing some persecution, intense persecution, sooner than we think. You know, in Canada, they, they say that, you know, pastors can get put in jail for calling homosexuality a sin. If that law gets passed here, you know, they say Canada's always about 10 years ahead of us in, in their, you know, downward spiral. So, you know, if, uh, if that law comes here, I hope you come visit me in jail. <laughs> Because they got to hold true to, to the word of God. I mean, we are living in crazy, crazy times. And yeah, we might face that. We, it, might, it might get tougher, but this is what we need to understand is that there's a difference between persecution and the wrath of God being poured out on humanity. That's what I want you to understand. The church has always endured persecution. The devil from day one has been trying to defeat Christians. Here's what's interesting, though. And this is even true in the book of Acts. The places where persecution is the toughest, the church grows the most. It's true. You know, we pray a lot for revival here in America and I heard someone say, maybe we shouldn't pray for revival. Maybe we should pray for persecution. Because it seems like every time there's persecution, revival happens. Kind of has a way of weeding out, you know, the, the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. And I will say this. Just track with me here for a minute, all right? There is a persecution that happens during the tribulation. There is. The Antichrist, when he comes into power, he comes against the Jewish people. He'll come against those who turn to Jesus after the rapture happens. He comes against those who don't take the mark of the beast and buy into his plan. But there is a difference with the tribulation time that's marked in the book of Revelation because this is the key. This is what I want you to catch. Everything happening during the tribulation originates from heaven. It originates from the throne of God. God's wrath is being poured out. What we're experiencing right now on planet Earth is originating from the pit of hell. It's the devil coming against the church and against Christians. But in the book of Revelation, what it, what it describes for us in the tribulation, it originates from heaven. It originates from the throne of God. It starts. There's three forms of judgment in the book of Revelation. It starts in chapter 6 with the seal judgments. And then it moves to chapter 8 where we have the trumpet judgments. And then come in chapter 15 the bowl judgments. These are cataclysmic events and God is behind it all. Now, he uses evil men He'll, he'll use the devil, but everything is orchestrating from his throne in heaven. You see, right now we are living during a time of mercy. Mercy means not getting what you do deserve. And this, this, this world needs, it deserves to be punished. But God is not punishing. He's waiting. 
He's being gracious. He's being merciful. But there is a day coming, and probably not in the not-too-distant future, that God is going to say, time is up. And here comes my wrath. But Paul says, we're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto that. But to obtain salvation. Okay? So that's point number two. Point number three, and this will tie into this, is the flow of the book of Revelation. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter one. One of the things I love about the book of Revelation is it's the only book in the Bible with a divine outline. You know, us pastors, we love to outline books of the Bible, come up with clever ways to kind of divide it up and, you know, that type of thing and... Book of Revelation, God does it for us. He gives it to us in chapter 1, verse 19, when he tells John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That's God's divine outline. It's really the key to understanding the book of Revelation. Section 1 is the things that you have seen, and that is the vision of Jesus in chapter 1 the focus what we talked about looked at on wednesday night at our magnify night section two is the things that are that's the letter to the churches in chapters two and three and those those letters to the churches represent the whole entire church age from the beginning of the church to the day and age in which we are living in today it's represent there were they were uh seven actual churches but also they were seven they they represent Seven periods in the history of the church. So that's section two. And then section three, he says, and write the things which, which will take place after this. After what? Well, after the church age is completed. Now, here's what I want you to think about. The word church is used 19 times in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. But from chapter four... Through the end of the book, it's never, ever used again. Why? The church is not seen in the rest of the book of Revelation here on planet Earth. In fact, the next time that the church shows up is in chapter 19 when we're coming back with Jesus. Now, there are people all during the tribulation that are coming to Christ, People that you're going to be sharing with, friends and family members who, after you're gone, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, he was right. You know, I need to go get the Left Behind series and figure out what's going to happen, you know, because it's going to get crazy, you know. And they're going to get saved. They're going to give their hearts to Jesus. But unfortunately, a lot of them are going to be martyred for their faith. So the third phase is the things that will take place after this, after the church age. And it begins in chapter 4 when he says, And after these things I looked up and behold, a door standing in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, sound familiar? Speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. After the church age is completed, John sees a door standing open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet that says, come up here and I'm going to show you what's going to happen next. And this is really an interesting picture of what we just read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the trumpet of God sounding and John being called up. And I think this is a wonderful picture of the rapture of the church. 
Now, here's what I want you to catch. In chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation, we see the church where? In heaven. We see the church with Jesus. John representing the church. We see him before the Lord. In chapter 6, God's wrath starts. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see the first seal open, and it says this. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a, a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the tribulation opens with the coming of this one on a white horse. Some think this is Jesus. No, this isn't Jesus. He's the lamb in the scene. This is the Antichrist. Trying to look like Jesus, that's what Satan does all the time. He tries to disguise himself as a counterfeit. But again, this is what I want you to catch. The first thing that happens, the beginning of the tribulation time, here comes the Antichrist. And what is he doing? He comes conquering and to conquer. And this is what I want you to understand and catch. All of this, though, is originating from heaven. The seal being opened. He's going to force himself into position. And we saw last time that he's going to be a man of war, but he's also going to be this great, this Antichrist is going to be this great diplomatic leader. He comes on the scene. I think he's going to be the one that solves the problem of the rapture. Millions of people are suddenly gone. The world's going to be in chaos. And he's going to come on the scene with some answers. He's going to be a smooth operator. He's going to be a a great talker. He's not going to need a teleprompter. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just being real with that, you know? <laughs> Sometimes you listen to politicians give these speeches, and then you see somebody interview them, and they're just like stumbling all over themselves, right? I mean, I'll be honest, I'm the same way. I, I use notes when I teach because... If I didn't, I would talk and I would go off on rabbit trails, you know, and you wouldn't like it at all, you know. So I I have an outline that kind of keeps me. So I wasn't being mean when I said that, but I'm just saying this guy's going to be a good communicator. All right. He's going to solve the problem in the Middle East. The tension between the Arabs and, and Israel. And in Daniel chapter 9, we see a division in the tribulation where it lays out for us that this is the distinction. You know why the Bible talks about that the tribulation is divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods? This, this is why. The first three-and-a-half years, the Antichrist is at peace with Israel. He's making friends with Israel. He's helping Israel. He helps them rebuild their temple. But in the second three-and-a-half years, he turns on evil on Israel. And in that three-and-a-half-year part, Mark, this is what happens It's laid out in Matthew chapter 24, Daniel chapter 9, the abomination of desolation. He goes into the temple. The temple's rebuilt during the tribulation time. Who's going to help Israel do that? It's going to be the Antichrist. He comes to the temple and he declares that they would worship him as God. And that's what the Bible refers to as the abomination of desolation. That's the the dividing points in the tribulation time. 
But as we read further here in Revelation, these seal judgments, again, they're originating from heaven. There's horrific things happening here on planet Earth. The second seal judgment, there's war and violence on planet Earth. The third and fourth seal judgments, there's famine and death. One quarter of the Earth's population is, is, is killed. Today, that would be 1.7 billion people would die if it, if it happened today. This is sad. This is sad. There's real people that we know that are going to go through this. The fifth seal, you have those who have come to Christ during the tribulation. They're being martyred. And then the sixth seal is earthquakes and cataclysmic events. But I want you to read the reaction of those who are on the earth when this is happening. This is important, okay? This is key. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Who's on the throne? God the Father. And then he says, and from the wrath of the Lamb. They share the throne. But hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Now I point this out. Because those who believe that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation, those who hold to the pre-wrath position that they like to refute the argument that we're not appointed under wrath and they say that, well, the first you know, three and a half years is kind of peaceful, but it's, it's in the second three and a half years, that's what's called the great tribulation, that that's when God pours out his wrath and that's what we're going to escape. But we're here for the first part. But guys, this is right in the beginning of the tribulation, this is chapter 6. We haven't even got to the, the trumpet judgments yet or the bowl judgments yet. And they're saying to the mountains. I mean, this is how intense this is going to be. I don't know about you. My wife and I, we were just uh, Friday. We were just out in Joshua Tree National Park. How many of you have been to Joshua Tree? Okay. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you need to go there. I, I've lived, I'm 58 years old. I've lived in California for my whole life except for five years I lived in Oregon. And this was the first time I've ever been to Joshua Tree National Park. Shame on me. It's beautiful. We spent like two hours there. We, we need to like go and spend a whole day, you know. We tried to ride our bikes through the park and went off on some trails that we didn't, it was accident, I'm saying, but it was like hiking trails, had nature lovers yelling at us because we were riding our bikes where we weren't supposed to be. But anyway, <laughs> in Joshua Tree, this is my point, there's these gigantic rock features. It's gorgeous, beautiful. Huge, huge, huge rocks. Picture this. And these guys are getting down and going, fall on us, crush us, because that would be better than experiencing the wrath of the Lamb. Because the great day of his wrath has come. And again, all of this is originating from the throne. 
This is the wrath of God. This is early in the tribulation time. So reason number three is the flow of the book of Revelation. Reason number four is because we're told that we're not to be looking, or that, excuse me, we are to be looking for the coming of Christ. Titus chapter two, again, I think this is on the screen. Is it Titus two? Yes. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here in Titus, we are instructed on how we are to be looking for the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus, him coming for his church. But here's the thing, those who believe in a mid-trib or a post-trib rapture, they're, for, you know, they're looking for the Antichrist to show up because that's got to happen first. But nowhere in the Bible are we told to be looking for the Antichrist because we're to be looking for Jesus Christ. So that's reason number four. One more, reason number five. And I actually, this, is, this one isn't on the notes, so if you're taking notes, it's, it's this. It's this one, one phrase, but I'll, I'll give you the picture. It's the picture of the Jewish wedding ceremony. This is one of my favorites. In Jewish culture, marriages were most often by arrangement. All the young people, when they hear this, are like, I'm so glad we don't live in those day and ages anymore, you know. All the parents are like, I wish we still lived in that day and age, you know. When the kids came of age where they could actually be married, before the wedding would take place, one of the first things that needed to happen was a home needed to be prepared. So the bridegroom, the young man, would begin to build a dwelling place for he and his bride. The wedding, in Jewish custom, their culture, the wedding could not happen until it was finished. Who determined when it was finished? His dad. His dad. And again, this is a great comparison to our situation. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you in heaven. I'm going to come again and receive you. You're my bride. I'm going to come again, and I'm going to get you. And yet yet the Bible says no one knows the day or hour of the coming of the Son of Man except the Father. He's he's the one. But here's what we do know. The Bible says even though we don't know the day or hour, we are to know the times and the seasons. We should know the signs of the times that we are living in. Well, in that Jewish culture, that's the same thing that would happen. The bridegroom would be working on the house, and the bride would get reports from her friends. They'd be cruising by and go, hey, I went by your house. He's got the foundation laid. Looks like it's going to be pretty big. You know, I think you're going to like it. A couple weeks later, another friend comes by, hey, we went by the house today, and the walls were up. It's looking good. A couple weeks later, another friend comes by and says, you know, he's got the front door in, and wow, it's really nice wood. You're going to love it, you know. And all the way along, she's getting, you know, these reports, and pretty soon she gets the report like, it looks like everything is finished. And so she knows, okay, it can be any time now. Now, they had this custom 
This is uh, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the, the ten virgins, you know. They had this custom in, in the Jewish culture. Again, brides would be so glad that uh, we don't do this today. And bridegrooms probably wish that we did <laughs> do this today. But they had this custom where the bridegroom and his friends would come in the middle of the night to surprise his bride-to-be. So she had to always be ready. I mean, she had to be asleep. She knows like it could be any day now. It might be this week. So she's there. Her bridegrooms or bridesmaids are with her. You know, her dress is ready. And the guys would be coming, you know, into town making all of this noise. They're yelling and whistling and, and, and this type of thing. And, and people would wake up and go, oh, there's going to be a wedding today. And the bride had to be ready knowing that it could happen at any moment, that the surprise was going to take place. So then the bridegroom and the bride, they would go and they'd have their ceremony. And then this is really, really interesting is the bride would then and the bridegroom would go into the house for seven days. Family and friends, they would party and celebrate. The bride would never come out of the house. Kind of a weird wedding reception, right? You know, she wouldn't come out of the house. The bridegroom would come out. He'd greet everybody. He'd get some food, get some drink, bring it back into her. You know, they'd have their time together. And it wasn't until the end of the seven days that the bridegroom would then present his bride to all the friends. Is that not a beautiful picture? of what the Bible says is going to happen with us. We are the bride of Christ. We have been betrothed to him. He has gone to prepare a place for us. No one knows the day or the hour except the father. The bride, though, we get reports. We're to know the times and the season, but the, and the bridegroom is gonna come. He's gonna take us away for a seven-year feast, and at the end of that seven years, Jesus comes back, and we, the bride, come back with him. And in essence, he presents us to the world as he sets up his kingdom and we rule and reign with him. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor Rob, why are you making such a big deal about this? Does it really matter? Does it really matter what we believe about the rapture? And I, and I say yes. I think it changes our whole outlook on life. You see, if we think that the rapture happens in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation time, like I said before, we're, we're looking for the Antichrist. We're gearing up for some tough times. We're gearing up for some heavy-duty things. I mean, I'm all for it, you know, having water and canned food and you know, that type of thing. I mean, you should do that just for emergency sake. But, but this is like, we're talking intense that's what we're gearing up for if we think that we're going to go. We're, we're storing up food, maybe guns. Some people would, hopefully, if that was the case, we would be storing up stuff to help people. But that would be the mentality. Like, hey, we got to get things ready because we need to be here to help people. We need to be ready to protect ourselves. You know, we need to be ready, you know, if we're going to go through that time. But the Bible doesn't instruct us to do that. What does the Bible say that our response should be? Peter put it this way in 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. He said, brethren, give, give diligence. Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. That's the first thing. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you're walking with Jesus. John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is, is pure. We're not playing around with worldly things. We're not living for the flesh. No, whoever has this hope, what is the hope he's talking about there? Of seeing Jesus. He says, when we see him, we're gonna be like him. And whoever has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. He's not messing around, but he's living in a, in a sense of like, you know, I, I wanna be right when Jesus comes. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells the parable of a master who left his servants with a promise of his return and these instructions, do business until I come. That's to be our response. So we make sure that we're right with God. We make sure that we're walking in purity and we make sure we're doing business. We're about our father's business. And we recognize that we're here on planet Earth because there's people. Why, why, why does the Lord delay? Again, we talked about this. I'll end with this. Second Peter chapter 3. But beloved, do not forget one thing that with the Lord is a, a thousand years, is a, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's he waiting for? There's people all around us that need Jesus. There's people around us that are, are on their way. They're gonna go through this horrific time. And God wants to use us. But you know what? Here's the thing. We like to say, time is short. I, and, I, and I gotta tell you, I, I believe that. I've been hearing that for 40 years. But I still believe that. We're closer than we've ever been. I believe that. But the devil wants us to think otherwise. And I'll end with this fictional story. Somebody described a meeting that Satan held with his demons. Well, they're trying to figure out how to trick people into eternal damnation. One of the demons came and said, let's tell them there is no God. And Satan said, ah, we already tried that one. Didn't work. Creation declares the reality of God. You know, the design speaks of a designer, you know. Only foolish people say there is no God. The second demon says, let's tell them there's no hell. Satan says, you know, most people are smarter than that. They understand that there needs to be retribution and there needs to be judgment. People aren't going to buy into that. The third demon says, well, instead of saying there's no God or there's no hell, let's tell them there's no hurry. And Satan said, that's it. We'll tell them there's no hurry. Ah, they got, you don't need to worry about that. You got time. And that's exactly what Peter said in the last days. Scoffers would come saying, where's the coming of the Lord? Come on, you guys have been talking about that. Yeah, we got time. We don't. And so one of the reasons why we're doing these prophecy updates and why we're doing them on Sunday nights is because I could never teach this long on a Sunday morning unless we didn't have any worship <laughs> at all. 
but it's because I think the Lord wants to stir our hearts. And if you're here tonight and you're messing around with sin, and you're living in carnality, and you're just, you know, not really walking with, with Jesus like you should, you need to get right and serious with God. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus at all, so maybe somebody invited you, you need to know that this tribulation that I was describing, that's what's waiting for you. But there is a way of escape. It's to give your life to Jesus. But for those of us that know Jesus, I hope, and this is my prayer in this, is that this would create an urgency and a passion within us to want to tell everyone that we possibly can what Jesus did for them. And here's, I heard this the other day. I I'm, I'm, I'm really am going to close with this. I'm really acting like a pastor or preacher tonight. Four or five closes, you know, that's how. I heard this the other day. I thought this, this was pretty brilliant. Because I think this applies to maybe a lot of us in the room. I heard someone describe what they called apology evangelism. This is apology evangelism. If you have somebody that you work with, somebody that you live by, a neighbor, somebody in your family that you've never ever told them about your faith in Jesus Christ. Go to them and apologize. Say, Bill, you know what? I need to apologize to you for something. And Bill will be like, what? What do you need to apologize for? And then you say, well, you know what? I've never told you about one of the biggest things, the biggest thing in my life. And I, did, I didn't want to say anything to you because I just thought maybe you would reject me, you wouldn't like me. And so I just was reluctant to talk to you about this. And you know what Bill's going to say? Oh, I'm really sorry that you felt that way. Please tell me. And he said, well, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is why. This is what Jesus did for me. And he loves me and he died on the cross and you shared the gospel with them. Apology evangelism. I really like that idea. Especially if you have somebody in your life that you've been reluctant. You look and go, you know, I've worked with this guy for 10 years. I've never ever talked to him about Jesus. Go tomorrow and say, you know, I need to apologize to you about something.